All right. Well, we are going to pause for three, three weeks. I almost said three months, but no. Three weeks, and we're going to take a look at some of the practices of following Jesus. So we're, we're going to do a three-week mini-series, and it's called Practice Makes Perfect. Uh, I want to thank Mike Moore for drawing that for us uh, this week, and it's pretty, pretty sweet. He, he loves it when I do this. Um, Super cool. Actually, it was fun this week. So I sit with a group of people and we kind of think tank these sermons and kind of, you know, what would the Lord want to speak? And so Mike joined us this week and, and heard all of the ideas for the sermon and went to the drawing board and, and drew that. It was kind of cool. Just, just kind of cool to see the body and its diverse gifts being used. Anyways, so this three-week series, here's the basic idea, uh, practicing the way of Jesus. And a lot of times sermons and, uh, and our, our look at the passages can kind of be high-level, sort of upstairs, big-picture theological realities. And sometimes it's nice to kind of come downstairs and say, what are the practice of what it really looks like to follow Jesus in the daily stuff of life, the daily things of life. And, and so this, the purpose of this series is we're going to try to get really practical. We're going to try to give you tools, tips and tricks maybe, uh, uh, of how to follow after Jesus. And so the title needs a little bit of explaining. Practice makes perfect. Uh, first of all, you guys might be thinking, wait a minute, I was told that the Christian life isn't about being perfect. And you were told wrong. <laughs> Actually, uh, the Christian life isn't about being perfect, but the Christian life is about pursuing perfection. Uh, and you might be, what, is that, what does that mean? Does that mean that somehow I can, I can do all the right things and never mess up again? Well, what it means is that, uh, and not to get too theological here, but what it means is that when Jesus saved you, he made you positionally perfect. He, he really paid for all of your sins. As we see, he gave you this position of positional perfection. And then listen to me, this is important. Sanctification, that's the thing you're all doing right now, this whole path of walking, following after Jesus. It's growing up into what you already are. Get that? Okay, the Christian life is growing up into what you already are. Now, there's some misconceptions about the Christian walk. Okay, and one of those, Christian, or one of those misconceptions about the Christian walk is that it doesn't take any work. And the reason we think that is because we've had it drilled in our head, rightly so, that we are saved not by what? Work. work. So therefore, there must not be any work in the Christian walk, right? The problem with that is that's actually not biblical, okay? Here's, here's the misconception. Let me put it this way, okay? A common misunderstanding about grace is that because we cannot work for God's grace, that therefore there is no work in God's grace. Are you with me? Because there's no work we can't work for God's grace, and therefore there's no work in God's grace. Let me make it clear. You cannot work to attain God's grace, but God's grace comes with some work. You've got to work to grow into the grace that's already been given to you. Let me give you an analogy that maybe will help this a little bit. Um, my dad, he recently, he, he went to, to be with Jesus about a year ago, and, and he gave me all of his tools. Okay, so I inherited all these tools. One of the tools that I got from him was this brand new generator. Um, it, it was like in the box, just really nice, okay? Now, my dad gifted me that. He may not know that he did that, but he did. He gifted me that, right? So it's, it's mine. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to, to, I don't have to do anything to possess it. It's mine. It's been given to me. But the reality is I haven't pulled that thing out of the box yet. I look at it. It's sitting on my shelf, and I think someday I should probably pull that thing in case there's like a nuclear winter or something, you know, and I have to uh, figure out how to, how to, to run, you know, my heater and my, my coffee maker uh, from it. But the reality is I haven't really pulled that thing out of the box, okay? Um, now, the, the reality is when you get saved, you have perfection has been accredited into your account. But then the work starts. 
Work doesn't have to do with earning, but work does have to do with learning and realizing what God has fully accredited to you. Does that make sense? So as Christians, we work, we practice to grow up into who God has already made us. So this is this idea of practice makes perfect. We are going to practice following after Jesus so that we can grow up into maturity and grow up into all that he has for us. This idea of practice is super important. Okay, why do we practice? We practice because we want to, make, we want to take what is unnatural to us and we want to make it second nature. We want to take what is unnatural to us, and we want to make it second nature. When I was a kid, I got really into drums. I learned how to play the drums, and I would sit for three to four. My poor mother, uh, all the gray hair on her head is because of this. Uh, at least that's what she says. Uh, so three to four hours a day, I would sit, and I would play the drums because I wanted what was unnatural, which is hitting this at the same time as hitting this at the same time as hitting this, to feel natural. I wanted to be able to do it in the dark without looking. I wanted to be able to twirl my sticks and do all this kind of stuff without even thinking about it, okay? So what we do is we practice to make what feels unnatural, natural. And the reality is because you are a sinner saved by grace who inherited a sin nature from your father Adam, it is not natural to practice the way of Jesus. It's just not. It's unnatural. And it takes practice. The Christian life is about being Christ-like, and the way to be Christ-like is to practice being like Christ, and that takes practice. So what we want to do in this series is to give you practical thoughts, practical things that you can insert into your daily life to practice the way of Jesus. Uh, Unfortunately, somehow in Western Christianity, we've started to think about um, the Christian life as having a position rather than having a practice, and by position, I mean, like, you ever write position papers in school? Or, or do you, you know, you have a position about something? Well, my position about masks are this. Let's not talk about that. My position about vaccines are that. Let's not talk about that either. My position on politics is this. Okay, that's great. That's your position. That's where you've placed yourself, okay? But what do you practice? What do you do? The Christian life is not just about a position, meaning, yes, I, I assent to the mental reality that Jesus is God. The Christian life is actually following. It's a practice. It's fun. Jesus didn't call disciples to just make a declaration and then never do anything. He called them to follow. So we, we follow Jesus. We practice the, the way, the life of Jesus. It's what we do as Christians. Okay, so that's the idea of this series. Now let's get into this morning's topic. This morning we're going to talk about something that we're calling the reality reset. So you might write that down. The reality reset. This is something that I'm hoping you can incorporate into your daily uh, life. Here's the big idea, okay? Every computer or every device that you have has something called an operating system. Okay, the operating system is the little thing that annoyingly tells you you need to update it every, like, three weeks, you know? And then you say, next time, tomorrow, remind me in 15 minutes. I mean, how many times can you do that, right? Uh, Because it takes, like, an hour to do it, you know? It's because it's a big deal. It's important. It's an important, crucial part of your device, The operating system essentially does this. It manages your software and your hardware. It it manages your memory and your processing, and it's basically your user interface between you and your device. It's really important. But here's what happens, and you guys know, if you work on your computer or if you're on your phone all day, which you are, because we all are, um, your, your OS starts to get bogged down. It starts to get lagging because we have too many windows open, we have too many things in our download queue, we have too many things going at once, and so when your device starts to run slow, what do you do? You turn it off, and then you what? Turn it back on. What's that called? Reset. 
It's called a reset. You call the tech guy, the first thing he's going to tell you to do, well, have you tried turning it off and turning it back on? To which you say, oh, I didn't even think of that, right? Yeah, should do that. Or is it plugged in? That's usually the other question. Um, yeah, oops, not plugged in. So the reset, that's the idea. Now, here's the reality. You have an operating system. You do. You have an operating system, and your operating system starts fresh every morning, and then it gets more and more cluttered throughout your day. You got windows up. You got little conversations that you had. Uh, if you're like me and you say too much, you said five things within the first 10 minutes that you immediately regret. Those things are spinning, the little circle spinning in the back of your head. You're thinking about them. You got windows that were left open, conversations that were started and never finished. You got deadlines that are floating around in the back of your brain. You just got stuff all day, stuff, anxieties, frustrations, concerns, fears, worries. It's just all there. It's just a big mess. And what happens is your OS, your operating system, starts to run slow. What most of us do is we just drink more coffee, right? That's what I do. What most of us do is we just adapt. We assimilate to the idea that, you know, I think my hardware is just kind of running slow. You know, or, or maybe, maybe I need a software update. I don't know. But we just adjust to it. But I would actually say that the God has a different idea for you, and that is that you would, throughout the day, you would reset. You would turn off, turn on, and clarify. And what, an, what an, uh, a reset really does is it's reorienting your device back to reality. It's reorienting your device back to what it was designed to do and what it was designed to be. It's putting all that stuff in its rightful place and restarting fresh. So this tool that I'm going to introduce to you, this reality reset, it's, it's something that I'm hoping you can incorporate into your daily life. Now, the best tool is what? The one you actually pull out and use, right? Okay, guys, anyone, right? The best tool is the one that you actually pull out and use. Buying the book doesn't mean you get it right? You ever do that? You're like, what's a good book to read? I'll buy it, and then I'll never read it. And guess what? It has zero effect on you. So this tool that I'm going to give you this morning, it's only going to work if you use it. You don't get credit for hanging it on the wall. You don't get credit for putting it on the shelf. You got to deploy the tool. You got to use it, and you got to use it regularly. Now, here's where Isaiah chapter 6 comes into the mix. We had Abby uh, so well read uh, Isaiah chapter 6 there for us. Isaiah 6 is going to lead us through the practice and the, the, the process of the reality reset. Because what Isaiah 6 is, is it's Isaiah the prophet having a reality reset. It's Isaiah having a reality reset. And so we're going to learn and look at the process of how he does it. And we're going to see if we can turn that into a tool for our lives. What is the book of Isaiah, by the way? Isaiah in the Old Testament is a collection of the prophetic messages, prophetic pronouncements, sermons, woes of the prophet Isaiah spoken to Israel, um, the north and the southern kingdoms, uh, in the, the 8th century B.C., Okay, so around 840, or pardon me, around 740 B.C. is when this scene that we're about to look at happened. Isaiah was a prophet. That means that he spoke um, forth the words of God, particularly warnings to the nation of Israel. Isaiah, the book, is actually referred to by many as the fifth gospel because there's so much Jesus in the book of Isaiah. It's dripping with Jesus. Just read Isaiah 53. Okay, people used to think that the New Testament authors went back and wrote Isaiah 53 because it's talking about the cross with specificity as though it already happened. And then they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that totally wrecked that. 
Okay? So Isaiah is, is very, very centered on the work of Christ. And what we're going to look at this morning in Isaiah chapter 6 is the commissioning moment of the prophet Isaiah into his ministry. We're going to look at what happened in his life that sent him into his prophetic calling. It's some pretty good Bible. I'm pretty excited to look at it with you guys. So real quick here, let me give you the housing for this tool. How many of you guys went to driver's ed? I didn't go to driver's ed, but you guys did. Good for you. Good job. Okay. Uh, well, my driver's ed was my mom uh, sitting in the passenger seat, almost having a heart attack uh, the, the whole time. And she didn't have that little brake, you know, the one that you can push, the uh-oh brake. You know, she didn't have that. Her brake was whack, you know, like, stop it. Come to a complete stop. You think I'm kidding, but my mother, um, she will tell you. Anyways, so, so what do you learn when you do driving lessons? You learn that when you come to a stop sign, what do you do? You stop, come to a complete stop, unless you're from California, then you just, you just roll right through, right? You come to a complete stop, you check left, check right, and then what? Check left again. Did you guys not learn this? Did you guys, did you guys learn this? Did anyone? Yeah. Check left, check right. Check left again, proceed with caution. That's, that's the goal, right? And you're supposed to remember that. And, and why do you do that? You do that because when you come to a stop sign, you need to orient yourself to your surroundings. You check left, no one's coming. You check right, no one's coming. And then just in case someone's pulled out, you look left again, and then you go. Okay, I'm going to steal that. And it's going to become the casing for our tool. Instead of check left, check right, check left again, proceed with caution, we're going to change ours to look up, look down, look up again, proceed with caution. Okay, look up, look down, look up again, proceed with caution. Can you remember that? Okay, just remember that. Those are the file folders that this tool is going to live within. Okay, let's dive into the text. And this is actually going to outline our passage. Isaiah is going to look up, he's going to look down, he's going to look up again, and he's going to proceed with caution. So first, look up, verse 1. In the year the king Uzziah died... Stop right there. In the year the king Uzziah died, I need to tell you why that's significant and why that's important. King Uzziah was a mixed bag like most kings were. You could read about him in the book of Chronicles, Chronicles 26, if you'd like to read his story. Uh, Isaiah was a king that had a lot of military and uh, infrastructural success. He actually ushered in, in many ways, a, a reign of great uh, prevalence or, or a, of, of um, it, was, it was a good time. It was good times in Uzziah's day, in Uzziah's day, okay? But Uzziah, it says in Chronicles 26, he got prideful. He decided he was going to go into the temple and offer sacrifices, which you don't do if you're a king. You just don't. God made that clear. He goes into the temple to try to offer a sacrifice. The, the priests uh, confront him, and they say, you can't do this. God judges Uzziah, strikes him with leprosy. He spends the rest of his life really on, on his sickbed, the last 10 years of his life, his son uh, being a co-regent. You can read about that, like I said, in Chronicles 26. So this is the moment where Uzziah has finally died. And why that matters is because this would be bringing on feelings of political and national uncertainty. The changing of the guard, the administration is changing hands. What is it going to look like for Israel? What does this mean for us? And as goes the king, so goes the country. God just judged Uzziah for being rebellious and prideful and offering sacrifices in the temple. Does this mean God's going to judge Israel? 
Israel was certainly not pious or holy or righteous at this point in time. They had a lot to be desired. So they're asking these questions about their national prosperity. This, this end of this, this age of national prosperity has come. And the question in everyone's mind is, what happens to us now? And that question is on Isaiah's mind. Now let me just say, these are the places, or these places of deep uncertainty are the best and most ideal times for reality resets. Because we're the most open and we're the most available to listen and to stop and to think before we proceed. Um, we are in a time as a culture where I think we're, we're, we're due for reality reset. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of unsure, what's, what's going to happen? Where are things going to go? Now, the year King Uzziah died, I saw what? Look at verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, this is where it gets cool. Isaiah is brought into this, this vision or this physical place where he is able to see the Lord. Now, who is the Lord? John chapter 12 tells us this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Isn't that cool? The pre-incarnate Christ seated in glory. Where is he sitting? He's sitting on a throne. What is a throne symbolic of? Power, dominion, authority. Where is his throne? Is it on earth or is it above the earth? He is seated high and lifted up above the earth, symbolizing the fact that he is sovereign. He is more powerful. He has all authority over all created things. So you can imagine Isaiah just doing his thing. He's going about his day. I don't know. Perhaps he's sleeping. But all of a sudden now he's in the presence of pre-incarnate Christ, high and lifted up, seeing his throne. And notice it says the train of his robe filled the temple. What does that mean? The train just means the edge. It's the hem of his robe. His robe is signifying his glory, and it is spilling out from the heavens into the earthly dimension, into the temple. What temple? Solomon's temple. This was before Solomon's temple was destroyed. It was before Herod's renovation was made. And so the, the glory of God is literally leaking out of the heavenly dimension down into the earth. The Psalms talk about the, the throne of God as though he sits in heaven and the earth is his footstool. So this is what Isaiah is seeing. It's, it's an incredible reality. It's an incredible reality. The edge of his hem, meaning that just the very edge, the very border of his glory is so intense that it fills the temple in the way that Moses experienced with the Shekinah glory. That's like saying, you know, when you uh, experience a breeze and someone says, you know, a thousand miles away, there's a hurricane. So that means that the intensity of the glory that Moses experienced in the tabernacle was just like the breeze as compared to the hurricane Far away. If we could actually experience the kabod, the center of the glory of God, it would be overwhelming. And this is what Isaiah is experiencing in this moment. Pretty cool, right? Pretty cool. Verse 2. Now above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim means flaming one. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Anybody watch Lord of the Rings? You know, I mean, like, that's cool. Like, he's just a flaming entity. Now, you're familiar with the cherubim. This is a seraphim. The cherubim are more common angelic hosts. This, the, the seraphim seems to be a level up, even more powerful, even more um, prestigious in their position than the cherubim. They have six wings. Look at Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. What's that all about? 
Well, he's covering his feet as a sign of humility before the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ. He's covering his face because he cannot behold the raw glory of God. This flaming one cannot fully embrace the reality of God or he'll die. He's covering his face to restrict access from the full glory, like God putting Moses in the cleft of the rock. He's like, you can't see me. If you do, you'll die. So how powerful is this God that this flaming one has to hide himself from the full glory of God? I love how Ray Ortland says that these guys, the seraphim, they are living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. And what are they doing? I mean, th- th- them in and of themselves are impressive, but what are they doing? They're crying out with praise to one another. They're crying out with praise. Look at verse 3. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Or in the words of Eugene Peterson, the God of angel armies, the one that controls the host of heaven, the army of all celestial beings that at a drop of a hat could come down and destroy this world with a word. He controls that army. And he is so powerful and so spectacular that these seraphim are crying out to one another and declaring that he is holy. How crazy is that? When the supreme created being is crying out day day and night to the superiority of the non-created one. How cool is that? And this crying out, verse 4, is so intense that the foundations of the threshold, that is the undergirding of the temple, the, the, the pillars that the temple is on, shook at the voice of him who called. Have you ever sat in front of a subwoofer that was really cranking? You feel it. It's not just audible anymore. It's a presence. Sound, when it's real sound, has a presence. I just think of Michael J. Fox on Back to the Future when he's standing in front of the giant speaker and he strums and he flies back 15 feet. Remember that? Um, This sound of this seraphim crying out in worship to God is so powerful that it's shaking the temple. And Isaiah is just sitting here beholding this. It's intense. It's insane. It's crazy. These guys can't help but worship God. You know, people hear the idea that you would spend eternity in heaven worshiping God, and they go, how boring. I would suggest to you that if you beheld God right now in all his glory and all his splendor, you wouldn't be able to help yourself. You would be so dumbfounded. You ever see something just completely amazing, completely astounding, you ever behold a sight, and you just can't help but speak it. You you have to tell somebody. That was incredible. Did you see that? I just remember being backpacking with some friends one time, and and, and this lightning hit, and it reverberated off the canyon walls, and it lit up. It was like daylight for a second. And you know the first thing out of my mouth went, did you see that? You have to praise it. You have to ascribe value. Did you see the power of what just happened? These seraphim are declaring day and night praise because this is how powerful God is. And what are they declaring? They're declaring that this pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, high and lifted up, is holy, holy, holy. What's that all about? Is that a misprint in the Bible? Like, why is it repeated three times? In the Jewish language, re- repetition was for emphasis. This is the only part in the Bible, the only place in the Bible where we see a word repeated three times like that. Do you know why they called the holy of holies the holy of holies? 
You have the holy place in the tabernacle. Then you go into the place where the, 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 the mercy seat is, the place where only the high priest could go once a year. And that was the holy of holies. Holy times holy. Here, we don't just see the holy of holies. We see the holy of holy of holies. How intense is this? What does holy mean? Holy means, it's the Hebrew word kadash. It means other. There's literally not much a better translation for it than just other. There's nothing. There's no category. There's no created thing that can describe the immensity of this person. And it's not holy plus holy plus holy. It's holy times holy times holy. It's infinite times infinite times infinite. It's perfection times perfection times perfection. This is what Isaiah is beholding. Are you geeking out on this or what? I mean, this is cool. This is what he's beholding. He is beholding the immense otherness of God. The immense otherness of God. I love what Tozer says. He says, we must not think of God as highest in the ascending order of beings, starting with the single cell, going up from the fish to the, uh, to the bird, to the animal, to the man, to the angel, or to the cherub, and then to God. God is as high above the angel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that... Uh, separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, but the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying that God is in his own category. There is no one like him. There is no created being. The angels are impressive. They're flaming ones. They have six wings. They're powerful. They are not even to be compared with the holiness of God. He is totally other. He's in his own category. Who can we compare with him? It's incredible. It's incredible. What we're seeing here, and this is important, we're seeing that God's ultimate rule is ultimate reality. Can you write that down? God's ultimate rule is ultimate reality. You and I do not live in ultimate reality. We live in a twisted, fallen, perverted reality. That has been overtaken. We live in the domain of darkness that has been populated by and and perverted by the father of lies. If you were to peel back the curtain of this twisted, fallen world and see ultimate reality, which is what Isaiah is seeing here, you would see every created thing glorifying God. And you say, well, then why doesn't the world glorify God? Because they have been lied to. Because they've been lied to by the one that wants the glory. If every human right now could behold the glory of God, they would, they would attribute the glory to God. They would. That's why Jesus, when he entered the temple, and they said, you need to rebuke your disciples because they're crying out to you. Hosanna. And he's like, if they don't cry out, what? The rocks. The rocks will cry out. The rocks will cry. That's why Jesus in his prayer, or when he taught the disciples to pray, he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in heaven, in the heavenly dimension, all things surrender ultimately to God. He has allowed certain angelic hosts in in humanity to rebel for a time for his redemptive purposes. But make no mistake, listen, God is high above all things. He has absolute power. He can shut down the enemy anytime he wants. We are not dualists. We do not believe that God and the devil are in some kind of 50-50 match. No. God is sovereign, superior, 
over all things. And this is what Isaiah is beholding. In ultimate reality, God is ultimately ruling. And that's why believing the gospel is believing ultimate reality. Because you put Jesus where he belongs, which is where? On the throne. Not that he ever left the throne, but you put him on the throne of your heart. And you recognize that's what his kingdom is. His kingdom is wherever he is made king. And when you make, became king of your life, then the kingdom now breaks into your life. Because his sovereign rule now controls you. That's why John, the apostle, says you can't be a Christian and live in complete open disobedience to God. Because to be a Christian is to surrender under the king of the kingdom. And to say, you're the king of my life now. And so though I fumble and though I bumble and though I struggle, I, so, I ultimately surrender to you as the king. So what? What's the point? Well, what's our first point here? Okay, not check left, check right, check left. It's what? Look up. It's look up. Isaiah looks up. I love Oswald Chambers. He says, the reason some of us have such poor specimen, or the reason such, so many of us are such poor specimens of Christianity is because we have no almighty Christ. This right here, listen, this right here is one of the things that Christians spend the least amount of time doing, and that is looking up. We are so good at looking at ourselves. We're so good at looking at others. We're so good at looking at the world. What we very rarely spend time doing is beholding the raw, unbridled power of God. And when you look up, it puts everything in perspective. We don't do it very often. This Isaiah 6 sequence, it starts by looking up, but it doesn't end there. After he looks up, then Isaiah looks down. Look at verse 5. And I said... Now, this is what's going to blurt out of Isaiah's mouth. You ever get put in a situation where it's so intense that you just blurt the first thing that pops out of your mouth? Peter did that, remember? Jesus took him up the hill and started glowing. Peter's like, no, let's make a tent for you and for me and everybody else. And Jesus is like, ah. remember that, that, that thing that Jesus does? Ah. The father leaves, show over, right? So Isaiah blurts something out. What does he blurt out? He says, verse 5, woe is me. Now that needs a little translating. In our culture, we say woe when something's kind of cool or interesting, right? That's not what Isaiah is saying here. The word woe is actually the Jewish or the Hebrew word oi, which you don't say it like I just did. That was weird. You go, oi. It's like, uh-oh. It's like our equivalent of, oh, man. Like whenever my wife hears that from the other way, she's like, What? You know, oh, and then he says, what? My translation says I'm lost. I think a better translation actually is undone or wrecked or doomed. Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees himself, and he goes, oi, I am done in. I've had it. Why does he say that? Well, he, he says, because I am a man, he says, of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts, so the God of angel armies. So what happens is Isaiah, when he sees the complete contrast of God's total purity to his own sinfulness, he can't help but blurt out that he is lacking. He can't, he, it's, like, it's like that blob of ketchup on a perfectly white shirt. You just can't help but see it. Isaiah's looking around. Everything is pure. Everything is perfect. Everything is holy. And then he looks down, and he realizes, I can't be here because I'm not. I'm not holy. In fact, I'm a man of transgression. 
And he immediately pinpoints the place of his transgression, which is his lips. If you were to stand before the righteousness and holiness of God, it would not take some thinking or some buffering or a little bit of processing time for you to identify the sin that you know you are living in. It would come out of your mouth. You would go, I am unholy. That's why, you know, God's not going to sit there arguing with sinners as to why they deserve to be cast out into outer darkness, those that are not atoned for, those that are not forgiven. You know, I've talked to people that say, yeah, I don't really want to believe in your God, and, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to have a talk with God, and I'm going to explain to him why I did what I did. And I said, really? Do you think Isaiah is feeling like he has any room for negotiation here? He's beholding the holy, holy holy who commands legions of flaming seraphim and cherubim who is perfect and unlike anything or anyone and he looks down and without even a thought he confesses his wreckedness. He is broken. He's totally done. There's a common disposition that people find themselves in when they behold the glory of God. It's flat on their face. Isaiah finds himself in this position. So what? Well, as hard as bringing our inadequacies and shortcomings before the throne of God is, listen, it's the only way that we will release our death grip on his job because we want to be God. And it's only when we behold him and then behold ourselves that we like, finally let go and let him be God. So we need to look up and we need to see who he is and then we need to look down and see what we're not. And that's an important key. You need to look up and see who he is, and then you need to look down and see what you're not. Uh, I love this quote, Andrew Murray. He said, just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds you abased and empty, his glory and power flow in. Because it's in this moment where Isaiah finds himself broken and humble and aware of his own sin, confessing his own sin to the Lord, that God's grace begins to flood in. Now, the sequence doesn't end here. It's not look up and then hang your head in shame. It's look up, look down, and then what? Look up again. And what is Isaiah going to see as he looks up again? He's going to see what God has done for him. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me. Notice what direction this salvation is coming. It's coming to him. God is saving. God is the saving agent here. He sends his servant to save Isaiah. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, I'm not sure why a flaming being has to use tongs to pick up a flaming coal. <laughs> not judging, just saying. But I'm guessing that it had something to do with the holiness of this coal. Now, what is this coal that the angel goes over with these tongs? This flaming being goes over these tongs and pulls it. Where does he pull it from? The altar. What is the altar? What's the altar? The altar is the place of atonement. That means that that coal is not just a random coal. That coal is the atoning propitiation of a sacrifice that was made for Isaiah. And guess it was ready. Guess what? It was ready when he got there. It's almost as though God knew that he was going to invite one into his courts that was not worthy, and he had a sacrifice ready. And he sends his agent of salvation, his, this being, the seraphim, over to take the coal from the altar and to apply it where? Where does he apply it? He applies it to the place of transgression. He applies it to his mouth. By the way, can you imagine 
that you are carried up to this place, and this flaming thing starts coming to you with six wings, holding a coal, and bringing it to your face. What are you doing? You're freaking out, right? Not Isaiah. He's not freaking out. Why is he not freaking out? Because he's more afraid of the Lord of hosts than he is that coal. You know, sometimes the application of the cross feels terrifying. It's not. Isaiah doesn't freak out. He receives it because he knows he needs it. This coal, what does it do? What does it do? Verse 7, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. What an incredible reality that this sacrifice has been made for Isaiah so that he can stand, he can take his head from being hung low and he can look up. And that's what grace does. It takes us from a place of our head being low to a place of our head being able to look up to the Lord. Now, make, make no mistake, it's the holiness of God that brought Isaiah to a place of, of confession, but it is the, listen, it's the goodness of God that led Isaiah to a place of repentance. You see, it wasn't the severity of a holy God that softened Isaiah's heart. It was the kindness of a holy God that would send his servant to atone for his need that crumbled and softened the heart of Isaiah. It's not God's severity that softens the heart. It's God's kindness is what Romans 2.4 says. His kindness leads us to repentance. I think about this scene in The Lord of the Rings where Gandalf, or not, uh, yeah, Gandalf and, and, uh, and Bilbo, and Bilbo has the ring and he's trying to keep it and he doesn't, he doesn't want to give it up. And what does Gandalf say? You know, it's probably better that you leave this thing. And Bilbo gets all, you know, fiery. You just want it for yourself. And, and in that moment, what happens? And they do some trick photography here. Gandalf gets really big, and it gets really dark, and he gets really severe, and he gets really serious with his friend Bilbo. And he goes, do not take me for a conjurer of cheap tricks. And then all of a sudden, everything shrinks back down again. He says, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm just trying to help you. And in that moment, Bilbo crumbles <laughs> into this powerful wizard's arms. So this is kind of the Isaiah 6 moment here. God is superior, his superiority is, is towering over Isaiah, bringing ultimate reality into his view. But then this moment of kindness comes where God says, I'm going to cover you. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to atone for you. And it's that kindness that leads to the clarity that Isaiah now has. In verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? By the way, whose mission is this? Is it Isaiah's mission or is it God's mission? It's God's mission. He's asking who will go. And Isaiah says with absolute clarity, with absolute serenity, without even a second thought, he says, I will go. That's the system reset clarity that I want for you. That's the clarity that I want you to have all day, every day. The clarity that says, God, whatever you bring my way, I want to say yes. Because I've, behold the, I've beholden the glory of you above all created things. I've seen how sinful I am. I've seen how much you have done to forgive me. And now I'm ready to go. Let's go. What do you have for me today? What's the mission? Let's go. That's the clarity that Isaiah now has. Having seen God's power, having assumed a right posture, and having received God's propitiation, he can now proceed into God's plan. He looked up, 
He looked down, he looked up again, and now it's time to go. I love Spurgeon said this. He said, when your will is God's will, you will have your will. We talk so much about what is, what is, what is, what do I want to do? What do I want to do in my life? And is God going to bless what I want to do? It's really not the right question. The question is, what is God doing? And how can I tune into that? This mission pre-existed Isaiah. This mission pre-existed Isaiah's atoning work. Isaiah merged into this mission that existed before him. Tozer said, a man or a woman who is holy or joyously surrendered to Christ cannot make a wrong choice. Any choice will be the right one. It's not so much about getting God to bless our plan. It's about surrendering our plan to God and getting in line with him. So what? So like Isaiah, so much of our anxiety is from the guilt of our past failings, the turbulence of our present happenings, and the uncertainty of our future doings. But all of this becomes resolved in where? In the place of grace. See, guys, let me make this very simple. What Isaiah is doing here is he's believing and receiving the gospel. He's believing and receiving. He's believing the atoning work of Christ. What is the call? Who is the coal? Who is the coal? The coal is Christ. Read Hebrews 9, right? We read it this morning with a group earlier. Okay, the Hebrews 9 is the once-for-all application of atonement to your sin. Isaiah has seen God, he's seen God's work, and now he's ready to go. But see, we get this sequence backwards, you know that? Here's what we do, okay? We look at what is ahead of us without first looking at what is above us. We look at what we got to do this week. We look at what we got to do this month. We look at the, the turmoil of the things happening in our culture or in our home or with our kids or with our friends or in our workplace, and we go, I just don't know how I'm going to get past that. And God is saying, hey, why don't you start by looking up and look up and see that I am high and lifted up, that my throne is above all of these perceived problems that you have, that I'm superior, providential, more powerful than the enemies that you are dealing with. He says, start by looking up. But don't just stop there. Look down and see that you can't do it without me. See that you are wholly inadequate. And then believe the gospel for yourself over and over and over again. That's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is believing the gospel over. I thought I only believe it when I get saved. No. You believe it every minute and every week and every month. You have to keep believing it. It's the believing of the gospel that changes you. It's the believing of the goodness and the grace of God that transforms you. It's not more knowledge. It's not working harder. It's not trying hard. It's not more resolved. It's a deeper belief in the sufficiency of Christ and his gospel for you, that he is everything. You keep believing it. It's a reality reset. We need reality resets throughout our day. We need them all day, every day. You need to stop. You need to look up. You need to look down. You need to look up and see who he is. You need to look down and see what you're not. You need to look up again and remember what he's done for you. And then you proceed with caution. This is completely the opposite of what the world says. What does the world say? The world says you need to look within. Eastern meditation, right? You need to look inside you because inside you is your true self. Or you need to look out there. You need to go find yourself out there. Jesus says the opposite. No, you need to look at me. Just look at me. Keep your eyes on me. It's in the posture of worship that you find clarity. And then we get this last point, proceed with caution. Okay. Verse 8, this is the hard part. So Isaiah is all pumped up, right? He sees the Lord, he gets forgiven, 
He gets commissioned. He's ready to go on the mission. He's like, what's the mission going to be? I can't wait. What's going to happen? Is it going to be like Jonah? Am I going to show up in Nineveh and everybody's going to repent? What's going to happen? Because Israel's apostate at this point, right? And God's like, okay, well, let me tell you what the mission's going to look like, Isaiah. Verse 8, or verse 9, pardon me. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? In other words, here's what God's saying here. He's saying, hey, Isaiah, go have a terribly ineffective ministry. Go preach every day. Preach your socks off. Preach till your throat hurts. Preach till you have to collapse. And guess what? No one's going to listen to you. And he said, until this city, how long? Isaiah says, how long do I have to do this? He says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitation and houses without people, the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. How depressing. How depressing. I mean, is, you know, when, when we do these steps, aren't we going to get the results we want? Isn't that the whole point of practice, right? I mean, that's why self-help books sell, right? Tell me the three steps, and then I'll get to do what I want. And this is what most Christians get up on a stage and tell other Christians, because we're Americans, we like it. Tell me what to do so I can do what I want to do. Give me the three steps so I can have the life I want. That's not the reality reset, because that's not reality. The reality reset is this. This practice won't ensure that the results you want, but it will ensure that you're ready to embrace the results that God wants. That's a very different thinking, you know that? The reality reset isn't about tell me three things to do so God will bless me. If I do all the right stuff, then God's going to give me everything I want. No. The reality reset is getting you prepared and mature enough for God's real plan for you, which probably is going to look like a cross. Why do you know it's going to look like a cross? Because that's what Jesus said being a Christian was. He said, you know what a Christian life is? It's a cross. You got to take it up. Every cross will look different. Not everyone's cross looks like Jesus' cross, but everyone has a cross. And to be a Christian is to carry the cross. So Isaiah's ministry was going to be faithfulness that looked like failure. Any of you guys ever lived faithfulness that looked like failure? Any of you parents, you ever lived that? Did all the right things? Loved your kids just the right way? And they still grew up and did whatever they wanted doesn't mean you weren't faithful. Just because you didn't get the reaction you wanted, just because you didn't get the response you wanted, just because you didn't get the outcome you wanted, doesn't mean you weren't faithful. Isaiah is faithful to go deliver a message to a people that have rejected God. Just like Jesus was faithful to deliver a message to people that had rejected God. And they killed him, but he was faithful. Okay, why do I bring this up? Here's the whole proceed with caution piece, Okay. Okay, the proceed with caution piece is important because it reminds you that just because you do the right thing doesn't mean you get the result you want. It's not about the result you want. It's about getting the one who is high and lifted up. He's the one you want. Trust me. The life you think you want, you don't really need it. What you want is him. You want him. He's the whole deal. He's the source of joy. He is the producer of joy. He's the producer of glory. Think of the coolest thing you've ever seen in your life. God made it. He invented it. He's the source of glory. The one who is holy, holy, holy. Get him. He's what you need. He's what you're longing for. He's what you want. So let's review. What are we going to do? We're going to stop often. 
We're going to stop and we're going to turn everything off and we're going to let the, the, the bandwidth sucking stuff of our life go away for a minute and then we're going to look up and what are we going to see? We're going to see a God who is high and lifted up. This is the God you need to follow, Christian. The God who is high and lifted up. That's what you need to see all day. Every day you need to peel the curtain back. You need to be reminded that your God is big. He's powerful. The seraphim cry out all day for him. So you stop. You look up. You see a God who is in control. A God who is providential. A God who is sovereign. A God who knows what he's doing. A God you can trust. Not some weak God who panders to whatever you want him to do. No, he is in control. That's the God you need to see. And then you're going to look down and you're going to be reminded of what you're not. You're not God. So glad. Aren't you glad? I'm so glad I'm not God. Everybody in this world wants to be their own God. What are they thinking? We're not. We're not God. We're not the creator. We're creation. We're finite. We're limited. We have limited knowledge, limited understanding, limited power. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. We look down and we see what we're not. But then we don't leave our heads hung low in shame. We look up and we believe the gospel. And we see the atoning work of God that has been applied to our place of iniquity. We see the atoning work of Christ and we believe it every day. And it's in seeing that coal that has been applied to our place of iniquity that we are matured. This takes practice. Did you know that? It takes practice. The Christian life is about practice. What are we practicing? We're practicing believing this because it's in believing this that we are transformed by this. It's in believing this that we are transformed by this. How often do we need to do it? Well, how often do you sin? How often do you feel anxious? How often do you feel overwhelmed? How often do you snap at your spouse? How often do you yell at your kids? How often do you get angry at the car that just cut you off? How often do you feel nervous at work? That's how often. Sam, are you saying I need to go have a vision every time? No. I'm saying that whenever you feel the, the impulses of this world having its way with you, you need to stop and you need to have a reality reset. You need to stop, you need to look up, you need to look down, and you need to look up again. And what are you doing in that moment? You're just believing the gospel again and again and again and again. You're going to believe the gospel again and again. Maybe try setting an alarm. I told my wife this last week. She tried it. It seemed like it worked good. Every two hours, just set an alarm. The alarm will remind you to stop and put God back on the throne. <laughs> Assume your rightful position as created being. Remember God's grace. And then move on in the freedom of knowing that it is finished. It's such good news, you guys. Tim Keller says this. He says, all I can tell you is that we have to relive the gospel every time we pray. We have to relive it every time we go to church. We have to relive the gospel on the spot and ask ourselves, what are we doing in the courtroom? We should not be here. The court is adjourned. You put yourself in the courtroom. You do it all day long. I do it all day long. Am I working hard enough? Do people like what I'm doing? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this... What are you doing? Apply the gospel. Walk in freedom. I'll end with this, one of my favorite quotes by Robert Clinton. He said, God is concerned with what we are. We want to learn a thousand things because there's so much to learn and do, but he will teach us one thing, perhaps a thousand ways. You know, we think God is trying to teach us all this stuff. We think the Christian life is about learning all this stuff. So we collect all this knowledge. God's really trying to teach you one thing. He's trying to teach it from a thousand different directions. What's that one thing? The gospel. Jesus is enough. 
He's enough. Come to him. Sam, that doesn't really help me when I'm having a hard day. It's because you're not using the tool. You got to use the tool. You got to believe the gospel in that moment. It brings total clarity. You should have got this when you walked in. Hopefully you did. If not, there's a basket of them at the back. This morning, we're going to take communion together. And I want to lead you through this a little bit here. Why did Jesus tell us to do this over and over again? There was a lot of reasons. One of them was he knew that we were going to forget. We were going to forget the clarity of what he's done for us. And so he wanted us to do it often. And I think he wanted us to do it together because we're a family. And we take this together, we remember together. That's why Jesus did it with the disciples together. Now, before we take this, I want to give you a moment on your own to yourself. And I want you to just take a moment, just take a moment to ask the question, where, where is my place of iniquity? For Isaiah, it was really obvious. It was his lips. Well, why was it his lips? Why wasn't his hands or his, his mind or, his, or something else? Well, I, I think Isaiah knew some of the things that he'd said about the Lord. I think he remembered those. Isaiah's like the guy caught on a hot mic talking trash about the king, and then instantly he's in the courtroom of the king, right? Oops, my microphone was on, and I was talking trash about the king. Isaiah immediately identifies his place of iniquity, and that place, listen, that place, don't check out on me, that place is where the atoning work of Christ was propitiated, that place. This is the beauty of confession to the Lord, it's the beauty of saying, God, I know where that place is, and I'm asking you to, to apply the blood there. I'm asking that you would give me the grace to believe the gospel there. So on your own, just take a moment, and just take a moment of confession to the Lord. And just tell him what that place is, just like Isaiah did. Father, this morning we confess our need, our need to you. God, we don't put you back on the cross and you've atoned once and all for all of our sins. So we, don't, we don't need more atonement, God. We simply need to apply the blood that's already been spent. And this morning I just pray for each and every believer in this room this morning that you would grant them the freedom of knowing that they're forgiven, that their sins have been paid in full, Jesus, this morning as we take the bread, we remember that you, the bread of life, are the all-sufficient sacrifice for us. Or that you're enough, that you're all that we need, that your body was broken so that our bodies could be resurrected and renewed you took the beating so we could take your blessing. Thank you for that. And we take this bread together to remember that.
Lord, the blood is the life-giving property of the body. It's what delivers life, Lord, to the organs. Without life, we're dead. Or without blood, we're dead. And without your blood, we're eternally dead. So we thank you that as we drink this cup together, we're reminded that your blood, Jesus, now flows through our bones, through our body, that we are no longer under the line of sinful Adam, but we are now under the line of the new Adam, Jesus Christ, and that your perfect life has been given to us and that our sin, past, present, future, has been taken and paid for, or that you gave us your righteous life and took our jacked up life on the cross. This reality the angels are confused by. And it's this reality, Lord, that we remember this morning and thank you for. In Jesus' name, let's drink together. Would you guys stand with me?